Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. But you discover soon that 
Actually, Hippocrates said this 2,500 years ago. So for thousands of years in science and medicine, we've been saying, hey, our mental life is simply brain activity. But what happened with me was noticing that there was something about connection, both within my own subjective world, which is not just brain firing, but subjective experience is another layer, if you will, of mental life and simply just calling it brain activity. And then the connections we have with other people. So one example I give in the book, uh, you know, is of being trained as a college student to work on a suicide prevention service. And, you know, we were taught that the way you connect with a person in a suicidal crisis could make the difference in that person's mind, how they felt, what they thought, how they executed behavior, you know, could make a difference between whether they chose to live or chose to die. And so I guess for me as an adolescent, it was imprinted on me in a deep way that connection, interpersonal connection, shapes the mind. And later when I would learn about neuroscience, college and then further in college and medical school, it was also the connections in the brain themselves, the neurons, how they connect with each other, was shaped by the connections that were made in relational experiences. So this was a way of thinking where connections can be used both in the inner world of the brain as well as the inner subjective experiences we have and in the interpersonal world. So I just became basically obsessed with the idea of what are those connections truly about and what could what could connect what was shared in common between the internal connections and the interpersonal ones. Also, if you look at studies, for example, of identical twins, and one of whom has PTSD and one of whom doesn't, you can see that in time, their ability to function socially and other things being impacted actually shapes the brain. I just finished looking up a whole bunch of brain volume studies and showing, for example, that in identical twin pairs, one of whom went and fought in Vietnam and the other twin didn't, that the volume in the hippocampi of the twins who were in Vietnam and had PTSD were measurably smaller than those that didn't. Also, areas of the brain to do with proprioception, once one's placed in space, placed in, in body movement, those spaces shrank relative to the twins without PTSD. And so these kinds of, of shattering experiences literally change the brain. Not only do they change the way we relate to other people and the rest of the world, but they also are, literally over time, changing the, the volume of important regions of our brain. Right, and, and one way of understanding those changes, not just in adult, but when they've happened early in life, developmental trauma of abuse and neglect, is a fundamental process which for some reason people generally uh, don't talk about it, and they certainly haven't talked about it much in the past, but it's how the brain, and it turns out any complex system, differentiates aspects of itself, like the higher parts and the lower parts, or this side or that side, how they can be allowed to be differentiated, to be specialized, to unique, to develop on their own, and yet then to become linked, kind of like cities differentiating in a state, but then having highways that allow good to be shared across the cities or you know, communication channels to be set up with laying down fiber optics. So those are linking connections and 
they link differentiated cities, or in the brain, you have different clusters of neurons that communicate very rapidly with each other in certain regions, but then these regions, just like the cities, have linking aspects to them, and we call that integration, the linking of differentiated parts. We now have a ton of scientific evidence to show that trauma, like you're pointing out, even developmental trauma, due to neglect, if you look at Martin Heischer at Harvard, what Marty has shown is that integration is a fundamental neural process that's impaired in the brain of people who experience developmental trauma. And what's amazing is that you can show that positive growth of integration occurs with, let's say, mindfulness training. And a third area of research shows that if you look at every measure of well-being you could look for, which is the human connectome project, that published this in October of 2015, you know, you can show that the best predictor of health is how integrated your brain is, how interconnected the connectome is, which means how the differentiated areas of your brain are linked to each other is the best predictor of every measure of well-being you could find. That really struck me as I read the book as well, the way you bring up integration over and over and over again. And the other counterpoint you make to that in the book is that when a complex system isn't self-organizing, when that integration isn't there, it tends to move to one of two poles, which are either chaos or rigidity. And that was such a powerful insight to me as I read the case examples you gave there in the book, that people who aren't able to find that, that sense of integration, that sense of oneness, that sense of self-organization, then will cope either by being rigid or going into chaos. I, I was so struck how when you apply that model to different kinds of cases of different kinds of mental health issues that you could see that pattern over and over and over again. Yes, it, it, you know, it, it's striking. I'm speaking to you from the room where I first was reading that back in 1992, so it's kind of funny to be here talking to you from this room. And it's striking because I, it, I had noticed in my patients that were coming to me, even though I was trained as a board-certified this and that, you know, to think in terms of the diagnostic categories we had, it seemed to me that everybody was coming with either chaos or rigidity, like being flooded with something or being shut down. And I thought I was kind of a little nutty in a way because I thought I must be just looking for an overly simplistic model. But when I looked at the DSM, the book of these diagnoses, you know, every symptom of every syndrome can be reinterpreted as chaos or rigidity. And now we have findings not just in trauma, but in people who have not been traumatized, but who do have challenges in mental health, like in cases of schizophrenia or in individuals with autism or people with bipolar disorder. Every study of the brain of individuals with those challenges has impaired integration of the brain. It's not caused by experience. It's maybe just constitutional or from infection or ways we don't know how it comes. But here we have evidence so far that every study of a psychiatric disorder shows, no matter what the cause, that individuals have impaired integration in the brain. And you combine that with the incredible finding that every symptom, whatever the cause of any syndrome in the DSM, can be reinterpreted as a rigidity suddenly this whole model has this framework that all works well together, and then things to do to create well-being, whatever the cause of its challenge to well-being, is to create more integration. And so far, that seems to be working. Can you tell us 
stories about clients, patients you've had, where either one of those extremes became really apparent to you as you worked with them? Uh, sure. You know, there's a book called Mindsight, where you know people really want to hear a case example of you know, make it uh, come alive. So there's a book called Mindsight, which is all case examples. And in that book, I talk about a 92-year-old named Stuart. And Stuart was brought in by his um, son, uh, who was a therapist, who heard him in a conference, and his father's dad had depression, and brought him in, and I was going to evaluate his dad. So his dad comes in, and sure enough, he's shut down, very rigid, you know, in everything, and he's just staying at home, he's not seeing his children or his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, he's just isolating himself in, in rigid disconnection from other people, including in his wife in a certain way. So the history was long, and, and I have it in the book, so I'll just give you the, the highlights of it. You know, my sense was, yes, he had rigidity with his presenting complaints, and that's how I do an evaluation. I look for chaos and rigidity and see where it is manifesting in person life. His rigidity was uh, basically in the area of relationships and in his um, ex- uh, awareness of his own internal state, and we call that vertical integration, and his ability to have a wide array of things that he could hold within consciousness. So that would be an impairment to consciousness integration. Anyway, there are nine domains of integration to review. In his case, he had a few of them that were clearly challenging for him. So I said to him, I said, look, you know, I don't, as we did a certain assessment of his uh, history called the self-attachment injury. I said, I don't think you're depressed like your son says, although I know I wasn't depressed. He says, but um, what do you think is going on? I said, well, I think you've had a developmental experience that has made you not really so integrated, and so your wife had been hospitalized, and there was something about that that made you become even more rigid in the way you live. And he said, well, I don't think any of this stuff makes any sense. He was an attorney, he didn't believe in psychotherapy. And he said, but... Um, there's one thing that's very strange, and it always seems to those times. You know, my um, law partner, I started his law firm with years ago, decades ago. He's dying, and I don't see anything. He goes, I just think that that's not right. I should have some kind of feeling. I said, well, how do you feel? He goes, you know, my whole life, people ask me questions like, how do you feel? How do you feel this? And for that, he goes, I have never understood what that question was referring to. So I knew there was a shutdown in him that had been there a long time, that it wasn't depression. And we embarked on an integrative journey to find out what was blocked in his integration from his relational life that then embedded in his brain. And then once we could figure that out, um, we then could focus attention, here's the key, where attention goes that drives energy flow through the brain, which is where neural firing flows and neural connection grows. So the approach was then to say, where is your brain not differentiated enough? You could identify which area where that probably was. And then say, what do I need to do as your therapist to get those areas of the brain firing on purpose with attention so that we can get to grow and after six months, his wife called me, and she said, I don't know what you did to Stuart, but you must have given him a brain transplant. Because he's not <laughs> you know, and so 
not really brain surgery, but it is neuroplasticity. And, you know, the secret of the sauce is just figure out where's the integration block. And Stuart was 92 when we were doing his work. And I always say about Chris Gates, the reason I love that he let me use it, Chris Gates, is because if someone in their 90s can do this, I said, you can too if you're only 88, you know, or whatever, 18, 28, whatever age you are. So the exciting thing is, we now know from the studies of neuroplasticity that you can grow the brain in certain very significant ways, especially that promote integration all the way across the lifespan. So it's it is exciting. Moment. And the, the speed of that, that growth uh, is astonishing sometimes. I was looking at a case history recently of a journalist who was real skeptical about all this, skeptical about mindfulness, skeptical about neuroplasticity. And so the researchers put him on a six-week project where he learned mindfulness and meditated briefly every day. Had done much more drinking in his life than meditating. He was not exactly your ideal candidate, but he did this. He reluctantly went on a six-week odyssey where he meditated every day, and also he would practice mindfulness. And the researchers measured his brain volume very carefully beforehand and after the six weeks. And various parts of the brain changed in their volume, the amount of volume that was apparent. So he got an MRI before, MRI afterwards, and they compared the volume of the various pieces of his brain. But here's the number that absolutely rocked me on my heels. In the parts of his emotional midbrain, the parts of his hippocampus responsible for emotional regulation, those grew by 22% six weeks. When I heard that number, I just couldn't, my, my left brain was just spinning. It was like, I mean, neuroplasticity is working that fast. The parts of his brain that handled emotional regulation grew by 22% in six weeks after he became mindful and began to meditate rather than drink, swear, and do all the other things that he used to be, be so really good at doing. Yeah, when, when you mentioned that your 92-year-old patient and how he was able to, to shift and that his wife asked he had a brain transplant, the answer is yes, in time, mind actually does build brain. That's, that's remarkable. Yes, it's remarkable. And now, basically, as your, the story of this uh, journalist shows and other research shows as well, the brain is remarkably responsive to what the mind does with the focus of attention. Yeah, and then you sustain that over time, and then that focus of attention sustained over a period of days, weeks, months, then literally is rebuilding those pathways of the brain. Yeah, well, that's, that's so just so people feel like they don't have to do like a month straight of meditating constantly. The idea is exactly what you're saying, Dawson. The, the regular practice, let's say, for half an hour a day, you're going to create a state of mind that itself is quite integrated. What that means, I believe, in the mindfulness practice, is the mind is differentiating the sensory flow of your breath, let's say, or the feeling in your body, or even the sensation of your thought, from the awareness of those sensations, the awareness of those thoughts, the awareness of the, the emotions you may be having. And that separation, that differentiation of the knowing, if you will, of awareness and that which is known, the object of awareness, is a huge integrative act. And a number of studies in UCLA and other places show that when you do that across these different ways you're focusing attention, it creates a very integrated state of firing if you combine it especially with kindness towards yourself and 
positive relationship with your own inner experience, then create a state in the brain that itself is integrated. Then, if you practice that for, let's say, 30 minutes, the rest of your day is going to feel very different as people who do this regularly can tell you. I can tell you that myself. Um, then, a state that practiced regularly becomes basically moving from an intentionally created practice to an automatically experienced trait. So you go from a state that was created with intention, mindful states and practice, to then a trait of your life, and that trait is created because the temporary firing during the 30-minute practice, when it's done, as you're saying, over time, over days and weeks and months regularly, then reinforces it so that you often say, from actually the process of looking at neural firing, neurons that fire together and wire together. But the important thing really is where attention goes, neural firing flows, and neural connection grows. So when you create attention in a way that integrates the brain in that state, it will become a more integrated set of connections as a trait that will be available to you in your life. And then, of course, when that's your default setting, then life's little annoyances, and there are all ways to be life's little annoyances, then those suddenly are less triggering to you. Yeah. You know, I was traveling in, uh, in Europe with my 87-and-a-half-year-old mom, and we were traveling to Berlin together, to meet, uh, my wife and daughter, and it was a great trip. Anyway, she had one leg of the trip, which was on her own. I said, well, Mom, you know, how is that leg for you? She goes, well, you taught me to be mindful. I said, oh, that's great. And both my wife, uh, Caroline Welsh, and myself have taught her to be mindful. She goes, you guys have taught me. And what you have taught me has allowed me to go from annoyance to amusement. <laughs> she goes, so what used to be annoying is now amusing. So I found the trip very amusing. <laughs> and I said, Mom, well, can I quote you on that? She said, absolutely. <laughs> Well, see, now we have a new neural filter through which all information is passing. So the same information is coming in, same input, but now it's going through this neural network, this filter we built consciously, proactively, as you mentioned earlier, and that filter is then interpreting those events very, very, very differently. Oh, exactly. I mean, I was going to the movies the other day, and it's a long story, but I, I was sitting in a certain row, and someone said, can I have this seat? I need to go these reserved sections. I said, fine. She goes, take one of those reserved seats in that front, more front row. So I said, that's fine. So I, I, I put my jacket down, went to the restroom, came back. Someone had moved my jacket. I said, you know, my jacket is there. The person in the back row wants me to be there. He goes, you can't be here. You're not in the reserved section. He said, he was really angry. And then he said, and I said, well, you know, the woman told me to sit here. He goes, you better get out of here. You better scram. He had a really angry look on his face. And I I knew that I could get really angry back at him because there was all sorts of reasons for me to have a right to be in that seat. But I just looked at him and I said, you know, in these days, we really need to be kind to each other. Look right in his eyes. And he got this kind of terrified look. He goes, I'm a kind person. I'm a kind person. I said, yes, I know you are. Thank you. And you can have this seat. And then I walked and found some seat. But mm -hmm. I realized that it's exactly like you're saying. When you practice this way of being present, then whatever automatic physiological reactions might arise, or psychological reactions, or emotional reactions, you can actually be aware of them, but then with this spaciousness of 
a different path for the sake of everyone in the future there. But it was it left me with this deep sense of peacefulness. It wasn't just like I was capitulating. I actually felt very, very calm and happy with the outcome. Yeah. And um does it change the other person? Sometimes, not always. Does it change you and make you less stressed? Always, definitely. We were talking about a story you tell in the book about a man who came in for treatment and evaluation when you were a resident. And you've been working in a suicide prevention hotline, and you realize this guy, I think he actually told you he committed a suicide that, that day. And just share that story with us as an example of both that the importance of human connection and also how modern medicine often really isn't well-equipped to tune into cases like that. Absolutely. Well, you know, this was a, a moment in my second year of medical school. Before my residency, I was still in medical school, and I had had the experience in college of working on a suicide prevention service, so I was trained, basically, to tune into other people's internal emotional states in order to try to keep them with hope going so that they, they would not choose to kill themselves. And, you know, that was my past experience. And then my first year of medical school, you know, there were a number of experiences that, that suggested that people who were my teachers in the hospital were primarily interested, basically, the world of the body and not the world of the person as a an individual with a mind that is with feelings and meanings and things that uh, were part of their memory system, what matters in So there were a number of experiences happened, but this was my, basically my final exam for the introduction to the clinical medicine course in my second year. So it was a big moment, and, you know, I went in to do my final exam, which meant patient would come in, my other students in my group, small group, two or three of us, you know, the attending physicians, professors were there. And when the fellow came in, I said, hello, Mr. Smith, you know, how are you today? He said, well, Doc, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay, but I tried to kill myself earlier today. And, you know, so all of my suicide prevention service skills got activated, and I you know, did an assessment of his suicidality, tried to tune into where he was in his life, tried to get connected to, you know, what had led to this attempt, what the seriousness of the attempt was, where he was at now in the future, thinking about how to keep him safe, all these things. And then my attending kind of leaned over into my ear and said, Chuck, do the physical exam. Like this, you know, and like, whoa. I said, okay, okay, you know, do the physical exam. So I went into the next room and got in the road and came back into the room and he was ready. And I went there and started doing the physical exam, you know, which we're taught how to do. It's pretty straightforward. But then he had, I've never seen one before, but a grand mal seizure on the table. And I was terrified that I'd never seen anyone have a seizure. And here my professor comes and sees the patient from falling onto the floor. The seizure subsides. And then he goes over and says, just finish the exam. So I'm even telling you what's going on. So I complete the exam. And um, and then I, you know, asked if we could take the patient to the psychiatric ward, which we did in the outpatient uh, evaluation service. And we did. And, and then we came back to the room and, he looked at me with some cold eyes and he said, um, you know, well, you know, you asked way too many questions about how the person was feeling, you know, and what's going on in his life. And he said to me earlier when the seizure happened, he said, this is just a new drunk view. They just have to 
realized, I mean, after that, I can imagine that night I was about to drop out of medical school. And, you know, the last thing I wanted to become was someone like him. And during my time away, I, I realized that, you know, there is this way of perceiving reality that's the physical side of reality. And I was trained as a biochemistry student. I knew how to analyze chemicals and molecules and all that stuff, which is kind of what I was learning in medical school, too. You know, but then there's a whole level of the mind of our feelings, of our narrative, of what matters to us, the meaning of things. And, you know, this is all put under the term subjective experience. And amazingly, where I went to medical school, it was not a part of what we were trained to do. And if you brought up things of the mind, like feelings or thoughts or things like that, you were told it wasn't, literally, it wasn't what doctors did. So we learned years later that that was really an error, but it's still the way a lot of medical schools are practiced. And I got to say, when I went back to where I went to medical school, because I did go back, um, it was mind type. Years later, I would go back, they'd invite me to go back to give a lecture to the Academy of Medical Education. And the deans I had who had been there when I was in medical school were sitting in the back row. And one of my friends was in the back row, so I couldn't see way back there, but when I they asked me to talk about the mindful brain, which I had just written, but I decided to tell them about why I had dropped out of school and what it was like then and what it was like to come back. And my friend told me that the two beings who were next to me, respectively, you know, were crying. Mm. And I realized, you know, all of these physicians, they're, they're people, they're feelings, they're just not given the skills have these mind-side abilities, the ability to see the mind in themselves or others, and it's terrifying. You care about your patients. It's a way to take care of them and take care of the health them. And you aren't taught how to deal with your feelings. It's there when someone you care about is dying, so they just shut down. But then, basically, they teach us, as one of my teachers told me, there's no time for tears. There's time to let the mind be real. So what becomes real is only the things you can measure, you know, with numbers or being a scan, like a CAT scan of the brain or an EKG of the heart or something. So, you know, on the one hand, those sciences that look at these physical objects are really helpful to people. There's no reason we should exclude the mind. So this is part of another reason why I wrote this book. Because, you know, by making the mind under the term subjective experience, people discard it. And then also by making the mind simply brain activity, people just think if you take care of the brain, that somehow you're taking care of the mind, and you're not. So this is why I think it's really important to talk about what is this mind, and what can we do to have it be as healthy as possible in our connection within our own awareness and our connections with each other. One of the things that has really shown me the influence of the mind on the brain is doing EEGs with people I just got done earlier this year doing 110 EEGs pre- and post-meditation workshop, and we're just getting ready to do a whole bunch more next year. And Dan, one of the, the things that you see is you hook someone up to an EEG, you're looking at their brain patterns, you're looking at their brain waves, and then you tell them, think about a problem you've had recently, or even more dramatic, think about a childhood trauma. You mentioned developmental trauma, but 
they just a thought. So this is the mind thinking a thought, and this isn't even a reality. It's not as though there's somebody really there in the room threatening you with a knife or a club. It's just thinking about some bad thing that happened to you in the past, and what you see on the EEG is you see a huge spike, for example, in the brain waves that are characteristic of fear, and you see a shutdown in the brain waves that are characteristic of creativity and balance. And so when that happens, people are having a huge surge in stress biochemicals, and they're having big drops. We're also seeing in healthy immune factors like immunoglobulin A. So just a thought, just the activity of the mind is producing these massive and instantaneous changes in the brain. So, Dan, one of those questions that you address in the book, and this is, again, called sometimes a hard problem, is the whole question of consciousness. And I hesitate to ask you this question, but how do you, do you personally define consciousness? Well, it's really interesting, Dawson. The, the term consciousness, which I use synonymously with you know, the idea of awareness or being aware, is often not defined even by people who study it. They said they're oriented, they don't know what it is. For me as a therapist, the way I use the word consciousness or awareness with people I work with is to simply say it's the subjective experience of knowing. So just right now, if I say hello, you've got the word hello, but then you have your awareness of hello. So you can divide consciousness then into two aspects. At least there's the knowing of hello and there's the known of hello. And when you divide it that way, then you can see if you take this concept of integration, how you might integrate consciousness. Integration is how you differentiate aspects of the system and then link them. So in this case, you differentiate the knowing from the known. And in my office, there's a table that kind of looks like a wheel. And with the people I would work with, we would differentiate knowing from known, putting the known on the rim and the knowing in the hub. And we would move systematically a spoke of our tension around this rim. And amazingly, people would start having this transformation of the chaos and rigidity in their lives. And with integrating consciousness, basically, they would start getting this higher state of resilience and awareness. When I started doing this in workshops, and now in the mind, the book you're talking about, mind, I've given the results of a 10,000-person study where systematically I gave this in workshops, 10,000 people recorded the results and then reported them in the book. It gives this amazing universality to it wherever I do this in the world that no matter a person's cultural background, ethnic background, whatever their educational background, their age, nationality, it doesn't matter. The experiences are incredibly similar, so that you then get this amazing possibility of what the nature of consciousness itself may be. And it's almost like a spoiler alert if you haven't read it in the book. And I know you only read half, so you're getting to the, the half where I really spent a lot of time on this. But I'll just give you a hint that when you ask the question, when is the mind and where is the mind, and look at the mind as this emergent property of energy flow. And you then say, well, if consciousness is a property of the mind, and the mind might be an emergent aspect of energy flow, what exactly is energy? Then what you'll see is the reports I've gotten from all these mathematicians and physicists who look at complex systems from a mathematical point of view, 
look at energy from a quantum mechanics point of view, and you'll see this graph that looks at how energy can be considered this movement from a sea of potential upward through a series of probabilities to an actuality. So, in other words, energy like light or sound or electrical energy or chemical energy, real things that we experience in our body and in our lives, they're part of the universe. It's not some wild, mystical thing. It's part of actual, studyable reality. These are manifestations of possibilities into actuality. And when you get into real awareness test, you find that when people bend this bulk of attention around into the hub itself, when they explore the nature of the experience of knowing, the other day with about 150 people in the workshop we did online, and they experienced that because they described over and over again the following things they say incredible peace, openness, eternity. I felt connected to everything love, God. I felt safe. I felt at home. There's this quality of expansiveness and openness that, from a hub of this real point of view, is this deep place of safety that they can feel, the peacefulness they feel. From a physics point of view, I think what might be going on, and I discussed this at great length in the book, what might be going on is that these individuals who've done the practice are dropping the energy position to this plane of possibility, this sea of potential, and they're describing subjective feeling when they can rest with this open state, see its potential. And when people do the wheel practice, they've learned the skill of bringing their mind into this open state. And if that's true, then what might be an incredible moment in our history is we have an opportunity as people supporting other people's growth is to help people get to this hub of the wheel, to get to this sea of potential and drop themselves out of rigid or chaotic states that are imprisoning them. So it's really a very practical and science-based insight into how we can use the integration of consciousness to bring more well-being into our philosophy. And, of course, people are used to collapsing that infinite field of possibilities in the same probability over and over and over again. That's what conditioning. So we call conditioning when you keep on repeating the same experiences over and over and over again because they're highly conditioned responses. And for really millennia, sages, philosophers, priests, religious leaders, spiritual leaders, psychologists have tried to wrestle with that problem of how do you take people who are highly conditioned to collapsing that wave that of infinite possibilities into the same probability of suffering. How do you take people and counter-condition them? And I love this idea of separating the knower from the known, because when you do that, you step back and you're no longer wrapped up and so mesmerized by the drama that your emotions are totally entwined in it. You can step back in that place of peace of knowing that above the drama, transcends the drama, find a self-perspective that goes, goes far, far beyond that and a whole new set of possibilities. Dan, I'm so inspired. I love what you're doing. I love the passion you're bringing to it. I love the clarity you're bringing to it. I love the combination of emotional intelligence and hard science you bring to this. I'm so grateful for the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Dawson. It's an honor to be here with you. I look forward to more conversations.
we will cover the second half of the book in a subsequent conversation. Thank you again. And to find out more about the book, and again, the book title is Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. You get it online or just visit the website, drdansteagle.com slash book slash mind.